Andrew Ross. Um, he's here from Oregon State University. Um, he's a food scientist, works with fermentation, many other things. Um, uh, what do you do and, and why is it important? Oh, okay. That's uh, why is it important? Is the big question. What do I do? I I, um, I work with cereal grains, mostly wheat and barley, but I like to um, to branch out as much as I can. And a lot of what I do is just related to new varieties of the material of those materials, but also uh, formulating whole grain foods that are palatable and fun in my nicely appointed research bakery. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. So, um, where's it? Uh, where, where is it? Where is it going? What are the What are the future? What's the future of grains? It's a really interesting question because I think grain production, at least in the Western world, is at a is at a point of change. We see commodity systems uh, which have typically, you know, sort of from where I am in the United States, which are uh, geared at what I would call supermarket bread and the export market um, not doing very well for farmers. Uh, you know, farmers, doesn't matter how well they farm, are price takers. And they. And so we see, I guess, in some senses, a small backlash, maybe a growing backlash against that with um, some farmers trying to look at different um, marketing models for their, for their grains, which then means that they need to differentiate their, their, their product somehow. And so what we see is a growing, um, a growing understanding that there are a huge variety, even if we just think about wheat, that there's a huge variety of, 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 of varieties out there, pardon the tautology, but that don't just differ in their baking qualities that this one's better for cookies or this one's better for this type of bread or another but they have color and they have mm -hmm. flavor and they have aroma okay and i think the thing that's really changing on that other side of it which i think will eventually leak into to grains at the commodity side is this um, excitement about flavor and aroma okay well tell me more about aroma i know when i uh, walk into a bread shop that's the first thing that strikes me i know that some supermarkets still use uh, uh, bread baking as, as, as a way of attracting customers. So tell me a bit more about that. I, all I know is it smells good, but tell me. Yeah, bake, you know, the baking of, of breads and cookies and cakes. I mean, I guess if I'm just going to think about breads, most of what people associate with that lovely smell of bread is actually um, commercially yeast um, risen breads, which do smell quite a bit sweeter. And that's, um, you know, when I walk into a, a sourdough bakery, I think the smell's still really, really attractive, but it's, it's quite different. So that sweetness, actually thinking from a, an evolutionary perspective, that's the thing that it's, it's hitting our sort of sweet taste receptors, I imagine. It, yeah, it could be. Um, and that's why we find it attractive, that it's kind of actually a deep-seated kind, of, uh, yeah. kind of response. Yeah, it's, uh, to me, when I go, when I bake in my bakery with that aroma, it's different to when I'm baking sourdough breads. But, and it's not that one's more attractive than the other, it's just that they're different. When I'm doing other types of things like cookies and things and, and, and rich breads, what people are smelling is the butter. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 This is, this can get very complex very quickly, yeah. I, 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 I imagine. Um, but, but I want to go back to the, but I'm maybe talking about the, the once the bread's cooled down. 
yeah. the aromas of the the you, not only the the crust mm. and the aromas of the crust are in part not just dictated by what we you know sometimes erroneously call caramelization that's mostly Maillard reaction yeah. on the surface but the direction and the and the and the outcomes of that reaction are predicated on the con the composition of the grain in the beginning so grains that have a little bit more of the the reactive sugars um, grains that uh, maybe have other volatiles that are being produced by the fermentation organisms um, you know there's these are these more subtle aromas and you know others other than me have you know suggested that there's terroir involved in this as well okay. um, you know and so this is also part of this excitement about grains it's not only um, that we might understand that there are a huge for like spectrum of different grains that might contribute color flavor and aroma yeah. but that we might take the same one and grow it in different places and get different outcomes yeah, fantastic i mean is there i mean is there good evidence that that's that's the case i think the evidence is increasing i'm not necessarily convinced but then i'm i've been wrong before <laughs> so very specifically have i been wrong on this uh, on this topic so my original feeling about it was is that any of those subtle differences that you would see a maybe between two different red wheat varieties mm. would be masked by fermentation that I could mask it with fermentation okay. as a as a as a fermentologist as I like to okay. call myself um, but I made comparisons particularly with an older Canadian well it was I won't go into its provenance, but a variety that was grown in Canada in the sort of 1870s on called Red Fife. And it has a completely distinct um, flavour and aroma profile, irrespective of what you do okay. with the fermentation process. Okay. And is that particular variety kind of gaining, you know, gaining popularity in, yeah. in usage? It's regaining popularity. Is it but mostly in Canada or Canada no, and the United States? You, yeah, Canada, United States. But it, it was uh, the story of that. It's named Fife after a Scottish immigrant, but it was a wheat that came through, we think it was the port of Glasgow and into Canada that was a spring wheat, but we think it was from the Caucasus. Okay, amazing. Amazing. And you can follow the provenances of wheat as well, I imagine. Yeah, that's yeah. super fun. And that's, yeah. I think, you know, you know, future of grains, that's where I like to see it go is people having fun okay with grains absolutely and, and and eating well i imagine yes okay yes. tell me more about fermentation i mean you you you've mentioned sourdough and there's a different process different aesthetics taste yeah. and so on to it so um how different is it to uh, to to yeast-based baking and what are the kind of salient properties the things that we should be looking out for and improving on so I guess for me, the, even just the term sourdough is a little bit misleading because it comes from a sense that, in particularly in the United States, that sourdough breads became associated with San Francisco and it became associated with a particular type of fermentation management, which led to a very, very uh, acidic type of um, outcome, very tart, which mm. I don't like. Uh, if we go back and just use the French term levain, which means a combination of lactobacillus and wild yeasts uh, which people call naturally leavened for example um, depending on your fermentation management you can make them quite mild that the acidity is quite subtle 
and then, then the, you get the other secondary metabolites which come forward then in terms of the, the flavor and aroma profile. And it's a the, the whole um, art, there's science involved in it, there's microbiology involved in it, but to be able, my starter management, what I call my Levan management, is based on experience and smell and taste of the, of the starters. And um, so it, and so from that point of view, it can be quite, it's very, very different to just taking some commercial yeast and adding it, adding it in. Okay. Um, so, but even if I make the same bread with a commercial yeast, so with the same flour and water and salt, but I use commercial yeast versus uh, sourdough and manage it to make the sourness quite mild, there's still there radical differences in the flavor and aroma and they're, they're very distinct and there are also differences in texture so we are bringing the art back into into the science of bread making so very clearly a hard chemi chemist hard chemist scientist um who is is taking the science and and and, and improving the aesthetics of bread making i'd hope to be doing that i work with a lot of really <laughs> talented bakers i mean i'm competent um uh, and well trained but uh, you know, I work with people who are magicians almost. And uh, I think there's a swirling dance between the science and the craft. I don't know that I'd necessarily mm. call it art. Are you able to name any of these magicians? Oh, yeah, I mean, a, a good friend of mine called Craig Ponsford, who's based in uh, the, San, the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and, um, you know, just other bakers up and down the west coast of, of the US. Uh, Pierre Raboul, who's in um, Stuck Bakery in, in Vienna, you know, okay. the, the, and watch what they, to be able to watch what they do um, from the craft, coming at it from a craft point of view, and me coming at it initially from a science, you know, the, the chemistry point of view, uh, to see how they can be synergized or synergized with each other and um, allow people to make either better product or just satisfy the curiosity about what is maybe going on under the bonnet yeah uh, so there really is a, a revolution in bread going on I think the there is, I think there is I mean if you look in the UK the real bread campaigns been going now for for some time um, I'm I know Andrew Whiteley who's been quite um, vocal in that area and um, there, I just think if I go back maybe about 80 to 100 years and I look at the interwar period and see that bread is when bread became uh, manufactured by machines that, and we can't apply our current thinking to them because people back then were suspicious of bakers and so this it was a badge of honor to have bread that wasn't touched by human hands um, but it became a wrapped square sandwich loaf at least in the united states and in australia um, which was then undifferentiated from one bakery to another other than the wrapper mm. and i think bread became devalued and so this what i see is the revolution in bread and the real bread campaign is to bring back value to bread from the point of view of the consumer, thinking of it as not just a filler or some, you know, yeah. uh, un, undifferentiated um, substrate to put on, you know, your jam and, and cream and whatever. Revaluating bread and making it uh, making it uh, something that's important to eat and not just as a filler. That's an important thing. It brings me 
brings to mind the, the, the issue of obesity and, and mindless eating, which mm. you know, a number of people have researched on. And I guess if you can revalue bread and increase its aesthetic qualities, then that should reduce the tendency to eat mindlessly as well. So yeah. tell me about how you think grains, you know, the, the grain revolution, as you see it, might be contributing to, to, to improving the uh, obesity scenario. So I want to just reflect just at first on what you talked about, about valuing bread and the, the possibility that if people are buying bread that's made by hand, that's probably arguably going to be more expensive just because there's more labour costs going into it, that they'll value it better, but they'll eat it maybe, particularly if it's got subtleties of flavour and aroma, they're going to eat it more slowly, mm-hmm. that they won't need as much to satisfy some sort of, of craving. But there are a whole bunch of other very, very um, important layers on what we just termed this bread revolution in terms of uh, combating obesity epidemic. And one of them is just an increasing focus on whole grains in that community. And and I think quite well demonstrated, at least with epidemiological studies, that you know consumption of, of gra- whole grains has, has been associated with reduced incidences of all cases of all types of morbidity and mortality. Um, so this is the NHAIN study and the Framingham Nerf study and others that have looked at this. Um, and also the fermentation process itself. Mm-hmm. So sourdough, this is fairly well demonstrated in the literature that making breads with the Levan process or sourdough process, if that's easier for people to get a grip on, um, shows that it has, it flattens out the glucose spike the blood glucose spike after a meal okay and it, so it slows down the digestion of the starch because there's this quite curious obsession with digestibility amongst the sort of bread revolution people that if we make it with these natural leavenings that that's much more digestible but they need to be in context so they might be talking about the proteins but in fact we believe it makes the starch less digestible which is a, which is a noble cause this is yeah. and so just the reduction in the glucose spike reduction in this in should be reducing obesity and should be reducing type 2 type 2 diabetes yeah. yeah so if we layer that on top of whole grains so we're now making whole grain breads with um, these natural leavenings the sourdough leavenings then we should see an even better um, okay. Im- impact and even just um, quite things that you don't think of necessarily as being the benefits of whole grain consumption. So first of it is, is that if you're eating the bran from the wheat in a whole mill product that's just gone through a stone or a roller and come out the other end and isn't sifted, um, is that it absorbs a lot of water and it increases the motility of the gut contents Ooh. in the colon and which, you know, mm. leads to, you know, I have to talk about this all the time, but you get to poop with more ease. And, I've, <laughs> and and that's, you know, constipation such a miserable thing. And so if we had less, you know, like, it, but then there's all these other things on top of it that, you know, one of the thing, programs I work with is the barley program where we're trying to re-establish naked barleys so we can use them as total whole grains uh, as a foodstuff in the United States. And it has uh, a fiber called beta-glucan in it, which it shares with oats. Okay. And beta-glucan-rich meals are shown to stimulate colonic fermentation which produces more butyric acid than okay. other types of the, those fermentations when the butyric acid helps to lower the colon the ph of the colon which reduces the 
bigger of pathogenic microorganisms, but it also acts as a hormone for the epithelial cells and, and helps to program cell death so that the cells die when they're supposed to and they slough off and they don't go rogue. And it's also absorbed into the bloodstream where it acts to help reduce the glucose um, spike in the subsequent meal. Okay, there's a, the, I can see there's a lot of complexity in, in yeah. all of this. Bread is not just bread, it is... Uh, yeah, it, and then, but to go back to less sort of the craft of it and maybe even the art of it, the other thing that we see with grains too is, is that we're not limited to wheat and we're not limited to barley or oats, the ones that are very typically um, seen in breads, is that even if they're not used as flowers, you can use all sorts of different grains or t pseudo grains as inclusions. So, you know, I like to make breads that are um, have quinoa in them from mm. amaranth or, mm. you know, buckwheat as, as inclusions. Or I made some bread um, not long ago where I, I wrapped it in, um, in quinoa and pumpkin seeds. And so there are other ways, of, and, and when they get toasted on the outside, they have these beautiful um, flavour notes and aroma notes and that's attracting people to eating them and you know that's I can talk to people till I'm blue in the face about beta-glucan and butyrate and you know colonic health but if unless it's actually tasty and interesting they're just not going to eat it you've got a bit to eat it in the first place it sounds like you're doing a fantastic job and and uh, and uh, you've opened my eyes to uh, to uh, a, a really fantastic future that could have huge implications both for the quality of life and for human health. Andrew Ross, thank you. Thank you so much.